Illinois Toolworks says the UAW strike could shrink their profits this year. And I'll talk with Crane's John Asplund, who recently reported in Crane's forum about a youth mental health crisis in Chicago and beyond that predates the COVID-19 pandemic. I think that when we're looking at childhood mental health, we really have to start thinking about the whole system and everybody that's involved in the system. The role of the schools, the role of screening and counselors being there for kids in schools, the role of the pediatrician and the entire healthcare system. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Wednesday, October 25th. You shouldn't have to explain to your bank why your business matters. Wintrust Commercial Banking doesn't rely on clients to educate them. They have dedicated teams of Chicagoland-based experts specializing in a range of industries, allowing them to offer customized solutions. Built in the area for the area, Wintrust offers the tools and support your business needs to thrive in Chicago. Be your bank's top priority at Wintrust Commercial Banking. Meet your future banker at Wintrust.com slash banker. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks, FDIC slash EHL. I'm joined by Crane's John Asplund, who recently wrote in Crane's forum about a youth mental health crisis in Chicago and beyond that predates the COVID-19 pandemic and that has outgrown the capabilities of mental health professionals to treat. John, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate you stopping by to talk this through today. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, so talk to me about this piece. There, there's so much interesting reporting in it that, that I want to get into, but, but kind of set the, set the stage a bit, if you would. Well, um, we, we looked at a, uh, a children's mental health crisis in Chicago. It's obviously uh, around uh, the nation as well that has really gone beyond the capability of mental health professionals alone to handle it. It's been growing for a while, and there are initiatives and uh, suggestions about who, uh, who else needs to kind of join the team to uh, take care of this. And when you're talking about capacity, is it that the nature of the issues are changing or, or accelerating, or is it about labor numbers of mental health professionals, or is it kind of a combination of a lot of things? It's a little bit of a combination of the nature and the burgeoning numbers of children undergoing mental health conditions and a, a labor crisis that's hitting healthcare and the national labor force uh, together. But in the labor crisis in healthcare, it affects both mental health practitioners and primary care practitioners as well. But there are a lot more primary care practitioners out there. Yeah. You, you noted in reporting, there's something like 47,000 primary care docs in the U.S. and, and only about 8,000 child psychiatrists. That's a stark difference. Exactly. It's a specialty for a reason. Um, and the specialty is useful to get at the, the crux of mental health crises. But when it comes to diagnosing them at first and screening for them and for Starting the process for kids who are having mental health issues, uh, it's really a, it's really the job of pediatricians. Mental health clinicians that I talked to said that it's going to be uh, a team with pediatricians who see kids uh, more often 
and uh, we'll be able to screen between mental health conditions that are really impairing the, the child's life and those ups and downs of, of growing up, growing pains. Before psychiatrists and therapists get involved, the pediatrician is going to need to be uh, involved. Yeah, yeah, before it reaches like a crisis level. And so you noted also that that this is really just an acceleration, that that this is not about just pandemic result, that this was really already starting to happen before the pandemic. What has triggered this uptick in, in mental health issues for, for young people? Uh, clinicians I've talked to have said that mental health conditions for kids have been rising for more than a decade. Uh, got ideas of why and what's going on in uh, in culture and society, uh, but they know that they've been uh, they've been rising. The COVID nineteen pandemic, with isolation, with upheaval, and followed by a, uh, a healthcare staffing crisis that's cut back on access to care, really exacerbated the already present uh, crisis. And you have some really interesting and shocking data points in your reporting. Um, let's see, the uh, the Federal Health Resources and Services Administration, you noted, said that uh, nationally, the number of children ages 3 through 17 diagnosed with anxiety grew by 29% between 2016 and 2020. So that's leading up to the pandemic. And those with depression by 27%. That's shocking for a couple of reasons. Like here's this number, almost 30% for both depression and anxiety. But the age bracket is what really stands out to me. 3 to 17, you know, we think of like, teenagers having, you know, these kind of issues, but you don't think about a small child. That is really stark to me. Right. It really is. And like you said, it's been going on since before the pandemic and it's been growing at a rapid rate. When uh, when I talked to clinicians, they were saying that they see these things even in young children. And for older kids, suicide was the second leading cause of death for kids 10 to 14 in 2020. That was a, uh, a really stark statistic. And then the suicide problem is growing for everyone. Um, uh, it's among the top nine leading causes of death for people between ages of 10 and 64. That feels really significant to me. And then another uh, data point that you included that a youth risk behavior survey said 42% of Illinois high school students reported having felt sad or hopeless almost every day for two or more weeks in a row, that's really significant too. I mean, I, I feel like these numbers really point to exactly the extent of, you know, of what's happening. What's being done? Who, who's tackling this? Who's kind of leading this charge to try to figure out what's going on so that this can be mitigated? One of the things that has happened, uh, Governor Pritzker has created a, an initiative led by a report, Blueprint for Transformation, is looking at state agency involvement and coordinating that involvement. One of the things they've identified as a goal is to get behavioral health screenings in all schools. It's something that isn't done right now, um, but along with pediatricians, getting kids where they're at and screening them and checking in with them and gauging their, their mental health is gonna be uh, key to this. Dana Weiner from Chapin Hall Center for Children at the University of Chicago is spearheading the effort for uh, Pritzker's office. And they're finding that one of, the, one of the issues is early screening. Another issue is 
finding resources and helping parents find resources. Uh, navigating the system can be difficult. It's not something families want to do. They need help in finding out where to go and what, what the best avenues for care are. And that's one of the things the initiative is working on as well. Yeah. You know, and something that kind of stands out to me here is I feel like young people, and this is just sort of anecdotal here, but it seems like young people are having a lot more open dialogue about mental health. And so here's the group in such crisis, and yet they're a lot more open about mental health. That seems like that would help alleviate the crisis a little bit, not be just kind of a, a strange piece of it that doesn't seem to, to correlate. Right. In fact, uh, uh, one of the uh, young patients that I talked to, a kid named Leo, is really open and honest about uh, what was going on with him with ADHD uh, back when he was 11. He's 14 years old now. He said that you know he and, I, and his friends, they talk about it in school. Uh, they discuss mental health issues, behavioral health issues. It's, uh, it's perhaps not as big a deal. The only thing is that there's still a lot of stigma and still a lot of uncertainty among families about, you know, talking about it uh, with themselves and, and out in public. John Parkhurst uh, at the uh, Lurie Children's Mood Anxiety ADHD Collaborative Care Program said that he is seeing a lot of kids who understand the vocabulary of mental health more. But there are a lot of populations out there that still need help talking about it. And, and, you know, to kind of back up to to what we were saying about kind of using schools and pediatricians as sort of this kind of front line for early screening, you also mentioned in your reporting the role of the ER, because as you said, you know, not all mental health issues start out being calmly discussed in a pediatrician's office or, or in a school setting, or, you know, sometimes people fall through the cracks. Um, as it stands now, what is the role that emergency and urgent care is playing in this? Emergency care is playing a huge role, but it's not a role that they ought to be playing. I'm, I'm told that the issue of emergency room boarding in which patients come in and there's no room at the end, there's no inpatient beds to bring them to, that issue goes on for all sorts of health care, but for mental health care, it's really at a crisis. One of the problems with boarding people for hours, even days at a time in emergency rooms is that if you're in a mental health crisis, the emergency department is the last place in the world you want to be. So the chaos and the uncertainty of emergency medicine is absolutely not a place for mental health patients to be. To that end, Dr. Jennifer Hoffman, uh, she's a pediatric emergency medicine physician at Lurie's, says that emergency departments are trying to find places that are less chaotic. They're looking at segregated observation uh, rooms and uh, units so that kids experiencing mental health crises can go to a place that's a little more calm, a little bit more focused on their needs. Urgent care is also another place. There are more psychological urgent care centers. The emergency department wouldn't have to be that chaotic home for mental health crises. You know, we've we've talked a bit about how this was happening leading into the pandemic, but then, you know, the, the pandemic had an impact on everybody. Is it too early to to know for sure the impact that the pandemic had on young children? 
You know, I think it really is. Uh, just like long COVID is out there and we don't know the impact of that, the neurological and developmental delays that occurred because of the pandemic, because of being out of school, because of the fear and uncertainty, we don't know how that's going to present itself. Mashana Smith of the Center for Childhood Resilience talks about the fact that a lot of this is trauma-focused, and there's got to be a lot of trauma-focused care going on to uh, help kids gain the life skills they need to be resilient in, in getting through these conditions. She also said, interestingly, that the pandemic itself shed a light on the mental health difficulties that we're all going through and really shed a light on what children were going through. When you take kids out of school for a couple months, you wake up and you see that there's really an issue that's going to wake up and see that mental health issues out of this pandemic and in general really need to be addressed. What is the biggest takeaway that you hope that people have from the the forum reporting that you've done? I think that when we're looking at childhood mental health, we really have to start thinking about the whole system and everybody that's involved in the system, the role of the schools, the role of screening and counselors being there for kids in schools, the role of the pediatrician and the entire healthcare system in addressing, diagnosing, and, uh, and treating mental health conditions for kids. And that um, parents are gonna need a lot of help going through this. So we need to make it more accessible and more navigable. Yeah, certainly. All right, well, a lot of information here, but everybody head to chicagobusiness.com and find all of this great reporting in this most recent edition of Crane's Forum. John, thanks so much. Appreciate you stopping by to talk it through today. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, Ulta Beauty is testing in-store sampling machines. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Thanks for listening to Crane's Daily Gist. Remember, we provide a daily news brief that drops right in your inbox. It's our newsletter called The Crane's Morning 10. They're the 10 stories that will fuel a smarter workday. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10. This is The Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Illinois Toolworks narrowed its full-year profit forecast, saying the United Auto Workers' strike against the Detroit Three automakers will dent demand for its auto parts. Cranes reported that the Glenview-based maker of industrial equipment and parts now expects full-year profit of between 965 and 985 per share, a narrower view as compared to its earlier forecast of 955 to 995. The company's 2023 profit outlook also predicts a hit of 12 cents per share in the fourth quarter, also due to the strike. More than 40,000 union members working at Ford General Motors and Stellantis have now gone on strike since it began on September 15th. Ford's Torrance Avenue assembly plant, as well as Ford and GM auto parts distributing facilities, have also been affected. Reuters reported, citing a J.P. Morgan analyst, that the strike could undercut organic growth within Illinois Toolworks Auto 
automotive division by roughly 3 to 5 percent in the fourth quarter. Illinois Tool Works reported operating revenue of $4.3 billion for third quarter ended September 30th, up 0.5 percent from a year earlier. Analysts on average had expected $4.09 billion. But the company posted a profit of $2.55 per share compared with Wall Street expectations of $2.46 per share. President Joe Biden's re-election fundraising operation has gotten a powerful assist from Democratic governors, who have helped him amass a record war chest a year ahead of the presidential election. Bloomberg reported that Governor J.B. Pritzker has organized events with deep-pocketed donors, bringing in more than $1 million for Biden's campaign, according to a person familiar with the fundraising who spoke with the publication. And California Governor Gavin Newsom is tapping grassroots contributors to ask them to pitch in small dollar amounts, said the person who requested anonymity because they weren't authorized to speak publicly. Involving well-known governors popular with Democrats in their home states has given the Biden campaign additional avenues to tap donors in some of the wealthiest pockets of the country. Their support is also a demonstration of how party heavyweights are rallying behind President Biden, even as polls show some voter concern about his age and his handling of the economy. Since launching his re-election effort in late April, Biden has raised more than $143 million, including $71 million in the third quarter, a strong total for what has historically been a slow fundraising period. And that puts him far ahead of the Republican primary field, including the GOP frontrunner, former President Donald Trump, who raised $45.5 million last quarter. Bloomberg noted in reporting that Governors Kathy Hochul of New York and Ned Lamont of Connecticut helped organize events in their states and reported that New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy will likely host a fundraiser before the end of the year. Bloomberg also noted in reporting that New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham held an event that raised a high six-figure total, exceeding expectations for the state. Governor Wes Moore of Maryland co-hosted a fundraiser in New York with the Black Economic Alliance, which is an advocacy group, and has reportedly committed to hosting more events in his home state. After selling a magnificent mile retail property and putting a River North Hotel up for sale earlier this year, Pebble Brook Hotel Trust is now looking to exit the Chicago market entirely. Crane's Danny Ecker reported that the Bethesda, Maryland-based real estate investment trust has hired brokerage Jones Lang LaSalle to seek a buyer for the 752-room Weston Hotel at 909 North Michigan Avenue, that according to a marketing flyer. The listing comes about seven months after Pebble Brook sold off the hotel's ground floor retail space for $27.3 million and just a few months after the company tapped Jones Lang LaSalle to sell the 354-room Hotel Chicago, Pebblebrook's only other property in the city. Ecker noted in reporting that the offering will test investor appetite for one of Chicago's largest hotels amid a prolonged drought of hotel sales. Ecker pointed out that higher interest rates and lingering fears of an economic downturn have kept many buyers on the sidelines for hotels and other types of commercial real estate this year. Aside from the sales of newly built St. Regis Chicago on Wacker Drive and Citizen M Hotel on Michigan Avenue that were pre-negotiated while the properties were still under construction, the last big downtown hotels to trade were the Embassy Suites Chicago Downtown and Hilton Garden Inn Magnificent Mile in March of 2022. That according to research firm MSCI Real Assets. 
Ecker also noted in reporting that the Weston Michigan Avenue is also hitting the market amid a difficult stretch for North Michigan Avenue, where a run of store closures during the COVID-19 pandemic pushed the retail vacancy rate to nearly 30 percent, or almost twice as high as it was in 2019. But Ecker also pointed out that hotel owners downtown today have a stronger sales pitch than they did a year ago, thanks to a comeback in leisure travel. Revenue per available room, which is a key demand metric that accounts for both occupancy and room rates, averaged just over $146 among downtown hotels through the first nine months of the year, according to data from real estate information company CoStar Group. And that was up 9% from the same period in 2022 and slightly higher than the same stretch of 2019, though it does still remain below the pre-pandemic level when accounting for inflation. There is no asking price for the West and Michigan Avenue, which Pebblebrook acquired in 2018 as part of its $715 million acquisition of LaSalle Hotel Properties. In its most recent annual report, the REIT pegged the property's value as of the end of 2022 at roughly $156 million, or more than $200,000 per room. But that included the retail property that Pebblebrook ultimately sold off in March. Ecker noted that people familiar with the hotel offering estimated that it could fetch bids close to $110 million or in the range of $150,000 per room. The hotel and retail property combined last traded in 2006, when LaSalle Hotel Properties bought it for $214.7 million. Ecker also noted in reporting that Jones Lang LaSalle is playing up the city's tourism comeback and a robust next two years of scheduled big meetings and conventions, which typically book rooms at hotels like the Westin. The property has gotten $49 million in capital improvements since 2012, but marketing materials also frame the property as a partial redevelopment candidate. A new owner could split the hotel into a dual-brand property beginning in 2027 with the expiration of contracts for the Weston brand and Marriott's management of the hotel. Ecker also noted that Jones Lang LaSalle suggested in the flyer that the property could be partially converted into residential use, student housing, senior housing, or timeshare rental units. Crane's sister publication AdAge reported that at AdAge's recent media summit, Ulta Beauty Chief Marketing Officer Michelle Crosan Matos spoke about the retailer's prioritization of its loyalty program, personalization, and innovation. And now the Bolingbrook-based cosmetics chain is testing a new program that taps into all three of those things. AdAge reported that Ulta Beauty is partnering with SOS, a startup that provides digital vending machines of health and wellness products for a pilot program. The six-month deal includes the installation of SOS machines that will dispense samples in 10 Ulta locations in New York, Massachusetts, Florida, California, and Texas. As part of the trial, Ulta advertisers will appear on digital touchscreens on the front of each machine, while the 41 million members of the retailer's loyalty program will be able to pick and choose samples from inside. AdAge noted in reporting that because the program is only a test, it won't be part of Ulta's in-store retail media offerings, according to Maria Salcido, Senior Vice President of Merchandising at the retailer. However, AdAge also reported that she did say the program could lead to valuable data about what products and brands are resonating most with customers, and said that loyalty members and customers who sign up in stores can choose one free hair care, skin care, and cosmetic sample each week. AdAge noted that Salcido said that from the choices, Ulta will be able to gather better data and insights on what customers want and serve them more tailored content and recommendations in the future.
And Ulta joins Walmart in pushing more in-store samples as a way of finding out more about consumer preferences. That retail giant recently said it will expand its sampling program to more than 1,000 locations. Other grocers, like ShopRite, are also growing such offerings as online ads lose their potency at targeting new customers. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's reporter John Aspland. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.